0: Start building the home of your future today. Smart Home. Great to see you today. Would you um, turn in the Bibles that you have near you or maybe you brought, turn to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. So there was a man who had some health issues and he went to his doctor And the doctor gave him a series of tests to determine the problem and the extent of the issue. And after the tests were all completed, the doctor went back to the waiting room and husband and wife were there together. The doctor called the wife in to the consult room and said, you know, your husband is seriously ill and you're going to need to do some things for him or he's going to die. So she looked at him and said, "Uh, like, what things? doctor said, well, you need to cook him three warm meals every single day. Second, you need to give him full body massages twice a week. And third, have regular, intimate, physical relations with him on a regular basis. She looked very puzzled and surprised, walked out to the waiting room. The husband could read the body language and said, What's wrong? And what did the doctor say? And she turned to her husband and said, The doctor said, You're going to (laughs) die. The title of this message is The Master Bedroom, Components of Marital Intimacy. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about physical intimacy in a marriage. And some of the things may surprise you, maybe not, but they might. But, you know, in any home, uh, a bedroom is an important consideration. And it's easy to understand why. We spend a third of our lives in the bedroom. We sleep a third of our lives. So bedrooms are important in any home. But the master bedroom, when a, when a realtor wants to stage a home in order to sell it to a client, most realtors will say there's three rooms that occupy one, two, and three in terms of most important. Number one, living room. Number two, master bedroom. Number three, kitchen. You've got to stage those because according to surveys, 84% of buyers are saying the master bedroom is very important to them. Proverbs chapter 5, the passage we've decided to look at today, is essentially a father giving advice to his son about life, and in particular, sexual temptation. The whole chapter occupies that theme. The first part of the chapter is what not to do. The second part of the chapter is what to do when he gets married. So, Verses 1 through 14 has the theme, the disastrous results of sexual promiscuity. He's going to talk about the dangers of immorality, those who ignored the warnings of it, those who have been destroyed because of it. But then, in verse 15, down to the rest of the chapter, it's the delightful results of marital intimacy. And um, we're going to discover intimacy is much more than sex, but certainly sex is a part of it. Now, unfortunately, some people have been raised in the church and they've been raised to sort of believe that sex is dirty. Um, we don't talk about it. Uh, we feel uneasy bringing it up. And so parents, consequently, will not really train their children in the fundamentals just think that they get it automatically. So kids may grow up with that kind of mentality and think, it must be because it's, it's dirty. It is not dirty. Although it is like soil. Let me explain. Dark soil, rich, nutrient-laden soil is great in its proper context. Outside my front door, we have a little garden area, and the soil is rich and dark and deep, and it looks good there. That's where it belongs. It, it, it brings uh, fortitude and strength and vitality to the plants that it houses. But one day when I was working out there and I walked inside on my carpet... I brought some of that dark, rich, nutrient-laden soil with me, and the evidence of that is the carpet. I soiled it. Now it doesn't look so good. Now it's out of context. So it deserves the proper context. Out of its context, not so pretty. Or if you prefer, think of it like fire. As long as fire is in a fireplace... Let it burn. It's warming. It gives ambiance, atmosphere. It's delightful. But if you take the fire out of the fireplace and put it, say, on your couch, now it can burn your house down. When it comes to marriage, the smart home will have a master bedroom that is a sanctuary, a place of refuge. Second Chronicles chapter 5, there's a verse though it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Hang on with me. Second Chronicles 5 says, The priests brought the Ark of the Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house. Now the context is they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the Holy of Holies in the temple, but the language I like. The inner sanctuary of the house. I like the analogy of a sanctuary as a master bedroom. I love that connection. It is to be a sanctuary, a place of protection and shelter. It's a sacred spot for a husband and a wife. Um, It's for us. The kids don't sleep there. My office is not there. It is the sanctuary for the husband and wife. There are firm boundaries that ought to protect that sanctuary because that's the place that the couple will reconnect. They will get refreshed. They will recalibrate their relationship. And it's okay to have that and it's perfectly okay to say that to your kids and to even tell them the facts of life and why it is sacred when they are at the appropriate age. I always get asked, when when do I bring this subject up? I feel nervous talking to my kids about physical relationships. They're going to be curious and you want to be honest with them. But give them what they can handle, and there are different ages at which that is appropriate. But you can't hide it from them, because chances are they're at a certain age where they probably know more than you think. It's like the little boy who went to his mom and said, so where did I come from? And where did you come from? And she gets all nervous and says, well, a beautiful white bird came from heaven and dropped you off. And the kid rolled his eyes and went to grandma and said, so... Where did you come from? And she said, well, I came from the same place you did, a beautiful white bird, came from heaven and dropped you off. So later on that day, the little boy was talking to his friend and said, you know, there hasn't been a normal birth in our family in three generations. <laughs> that little boy was onto something that he knew already that the parents were not disclosing. Well... Back to Proverbs 5 and this idea of intimacy, I want to give you four components that will enhance marital intimacy. First of all, intimacy begins with commitment. It begins with commitment. Let's begin in verse 15. Let's just read the text all together, then we'll we'll focus in on a particular verse. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. And running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer, and as a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love, and be, em- and be embraced, uh, v- verse 20, sorry, and why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman, and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. Go back and look at verse 18 and focus in on this phrase, wife of your youth. Now, Solomon is speaking to his son. He's given him the talk. He has just talked about immorality. Now he's talking about morality. And he knows there's coming a day when that boy is going to find a wife. And as young partners, they're going to make a commitment to each other. Wife is a formal term of somebody that you make a commitment with for a lifetime in that context in which it was written. So the idea behind the phrase is... A commitment forged in one's youth, the wife of your youth. In other words, a monogamous, lifelong relationship. We've talked a lot about that the last few weeks. I don't want you to think that I'm saying a monogamous, lifelong relationship is going to solve all of your problems. It will not. In fact, you will get some problems with that. But what I am saying is that the sense of intimacy begins at the place of commitment. When commitment is firmly in place, that's where intimacy can flourish. Ruth said to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. That's a statement of commitment. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, God said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Those are statements of intimacy. And those statements of commitment create a safe place for intimacy to grow and flourish. Over the last several decades in our Western culture, commitment is sidelined. Couples aren't sure if they're ready to make a commitment. I don't know if I can do this. Um, And so the tendency is let's live together first. See if it's going to work out. So we call these tire kickers. You know what a tire kicker is. You don't want to buy the car, but you want to kick the tires, and you do want to take it for a test drive. But making the commitment of actually monthly payments is a whole other issue. And so when it comes to relationships, that's how people think. Let's let's move in, let's live together, and let's have relations together physically just to see if this can work out. And actually, they have it all wrong. Research shows that those who enter marriage with a sense of permanence, wife of your youth, are going to be more successful at marriage than those who don't. Two sociologists in a recent study said, people living together first are more apt to fail in their marriage than couples who move in after they say their vows. One article said this, studies show based on 50% Of the data, oh, excuse me, based on 50 years of data, studies show based on 50 years of data that couples who live together before marriage have a 50% greater chance of divorce than those who don't. Those who cohabit also have a less satisfying and more unstable marriage. Why? He continues. Research has found that those who lived together later regretted having violated their moral standards and felt a loss of personal freedom to exit out the back door. Furthermore, and in keeping with the theme of marital bonding, listen to this phrase, they have stolen a level of intimacy. Now just keep that little thing in mind. They have stolen a level of intimacy that is not warranted at that point, nor has it been validated by the degree of commitment to one another. Now that's an interesting phrase, and here's why. What these researchers are saying is what the Bible said years before. In Proverbs chapter 9, just a few chapters away from where you're at, in verse 13, let me read it to you. A foolish woman is clamorous, she is simple, and she knows nothing. She sits in the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Now, here's her pitch. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Simple means simple-minded, not too bright. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he, that foolish young man, does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. All of this language together shows us the same truth, that intimacy must begin with commitment. And it's the soil of commitment where intimacy can flourish. Second component Intimacy grows with enjoyment. It begins with commitment, but it grows with enjoyment. Go back to verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice. That's the word I want to key in on for a moment. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. The word rejoice is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is samach. I just wanted to say that. Samach. Can you say that? Now apologize for the person you just spit on in front of you. That's how Hebrew sounds. Samach is a word that means to brighten up. That's what the root word means, to brighten up. And it means in this context to cheer up, to be glad, to be joyful. Ecclesiastes 9.9, same author, Solomon, said, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your life. Now, I've met a lot of married couples over the years. I've counseled them. I've performed the ceremony. I've watched their lives. Some get really good, some don't. But not everybody lives joyfully. Well, they do on their honeymoon and the first few months, but as the months turn into years, turn into decades, turn into medical problems, living joyfully is quite another issue. I know many who live enduringly, who live insipidly, who live complainingly and grimacingly, but not joyfully. Now the big idea in this verse is a couple that they're enjoying life because they're together. The enjoyment is that they are with each other. That's really the idea. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. They're enjoying each other's company. They like hanging out together. Now typically when a couple first meets, this is not a problem. They meet, they like who they meet, they hang out, they go on a few dates, they get a little more serious. And there's that period of time where wild horses cannot keep them apart from each other. They will drive, I I used to drive 45 minutes one direction across Orange County just to be with Lenny as every waking moment. But the trick is to maintain the friendship, to cultivate the companionship, to nurture the relationship, and to enjoy it. Most successful marriages are couples who continue to bond. They continue to leave, cleave, and weave, the study that we looked at last time. There are two things that cause unhappy marriages. Men and women. The challenge is, how do we, over time, continue to bring enjoyment into our relationship so that we enjoy being with each other? Now, I'm going to paint with the broom. I'm going to go make some wide statements, but I think generally this is true. And it's based on tendencies. Men tend to neglect their wives. Women tend to nag their husbands. I think that's not an overstatement. Those are broad tendencies, but I think they're true. Men tend to neglect. Women tend to nag. They tend to nag because they tend to neglect. And so it's sort of a vicious cycle, right? He neglects, she nags, she nags. So he neglects more, she nags more. And it's just always going, something going on. So to get marriage enjoyable, it takes work. Anything worthwhile takes work. Men, if you want a good lawn, takes work. If you want a shiny car, it takes work. you want a clean garage, I know I'm using all male analogies. These things take effort. They take work. You can't, with your marriage, say, oh, it'll just work out. That's like saying to your, your yard, it'll work out. Go look at it when it works out. You've got a lot of weeds to pull. So, you don't have a good marriage because you say you have a good marriage. Oh, we're good. You don't have a good marriage because you want a good marriage. You don't even have a good marriage because you know how to get a good marriage. You have one because you work hard at it. And you're always investing and you're always discovering and figuring out ways to bring enjoyment. Now, what does this have to do with intimacy? Everything. Often sexual problems in a marriage aren't really the problems. Sexual problems, typically in a marriage, are symptomatic of other problems. Sort of like indicator lights on your dashboard. You know, if you get a light on your dashboard flashing, you don't say, There's something wrong with my dashboard. That light is broken. No, it's indicating there are systems that are failing inside the automobile. So James Peterson writes this. Conflicts, quarrels, bitter words will in time have an adverse effect on sexual harmony. One reason why it appears that sexual adjustment is difficult to achieve is that failure in any one or several of the other major areas of marital life is reflected in physical relationships. Generally, a couple which has achieved a satisfactory cooperative framework in which to face all of their problems will find a minimum of difficulty in coming together sexually. Some of us listening are going, what do you say? Let me retranslate that. If you want to have a good sex life in your marriage, try a little tenderness the other 23 and a half hours of the day. Okay. It doesn't just happen. It's intentional. It's cultivated. Okay. Um, Here's an analogy. I'll just cut to the chase. Women are crockpots. Men are microwaves. <laughs> we, we get that, right? We get that analogy. Does not take much to fire up a guy. He's revved up by a, a single vision of his wife in a certain way. Uh, does not require words. Does not require. A, Counseling and conversations and pats on the back intended to does not need that. Microwave, boom, ready to go. <laughs> Woman cooks slower and does require understanding and tenderness and everything connects. What you said that's, that morning is important now at 10 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night. What you said last week or did last week, it's all connected. So physical pleasure cannot be rushed It's part of a package. And intimacy has to be cultivated. So intimacy begins with commitment. It grows with enjoyment. Third component, intimacy includes allurement. It includes allurement. And and Solomon is very upfront with his young boy. In verse 19, he just sort of says it like it is, though poetically, as a loving deer and a graceful doe. He says to his son, This is dad talking. Let her breath satisfy you at all times. It's hard to picture that, isn't it? Son? (laughs) Let her breath satisfy you at all times. And always be enraptured with her love. The reason I'm setting it up that way is I just want you to see this. Sex was not invented by Hollywood. It was not invented by Las Vegas. Sex was invented in the loving heart and mind of a loving God. He, he designed us that way. It's His idea. C.S. Lewis writes, "Pleasure is God's invention, not the devil's." Trouble is, the devil's hijacked it, as if He invented it. As if you, if you believe in Jesus and follow God, man, you're not gonna, you're gonna live a subpar sensory life. You got to get with it over here. All lies. When God created people, He made them male and female, and they were both naked and not what? They were not ashamed, because there was nothing to be ashamed of. That was part of His design. I'd like you to notice some words in these verses, verse 15, 16, and 18. Notice the word cistern. It's not a word we use anymore. A cistern is a hole dug in solid rock, then plastered up in the Middle East. It, is used, it was used to collect water. So in places where rain was sporadic and there wasn't sources of water, they would build these cisterns to collect water. Then notice the word well. And a well was something that was dug in the earth, as you know, so it could also be a water source. Then notice the word streams. All water analogies here. And the word fountain. So cistern, well, streams, fountains. What are these? Places of refreshment. That's what they are, places of refreshment and sustenance. So, metaphorically, they are used in the Bible, like here, to speak of a a couple's sexual delight and satisfaction. In fact, Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, written largely on his honeymoon, uh, talked about it as, "...a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams." Now back to verse 19. That's sort of a fun verse, isn't it? Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. The word satisfy means to be satiated, saturated, or to have one's drink or fill, he tells his boy. Look at the word enraptured. And always be enraptured with her love. That means love making. Be enraptured by her love making. The word enraptured means to be intoxicated with, to swerve, to meander, to reel, to roll. Okay then, that's pretty raw, but that's what the word means. If you think God is some stuffy celestial uh, prude, you don't get Him. You don't understand Him. This, This is from the Scriptures, this is God's Word. Yes, the Bible condemns the fire burning outside the fireplace, but inside the fireplace, it's as if God is saying, and Solomon is saying to his son, Burn, baby, burn. <laughs> Hebrews 13, verse 4. Now, this is a text many of you know. When I stayed, you go, oh, I, I've heard, I, I know that verse. The writer says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. Have you ever heard of that verse? Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. Here's the problem with that verse. We sometimes translate things a little too tamely. The word bed does not mean the bed. It's the Greek word koite, where we get the word "coitus" from, or the, the act of sexual intercourse. It means the cohabitation by implanting the male sperm. Now that's pretty explicit. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. Okay, so since we're in the thick of it, let me have you turn over to the Song of Solomon for just a moment. I mentioned that book a minute ago. Let's read some things together. Song of Solomon written before. um, They were married, then as they first got married on their honeymoon, then they have a little spat, then they get back together and reconcile early on. But this is, um, verse, uh, chapter five. And, uh, what I'm gonna, what we're gonna read is uh, the young bride as she gazes, think honeymoon, gazes at her husband. And she makes this statement. Verse 10, chapter five. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousand. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves. You might think, that's not too romantic. Actually, it is. Doves can only focus on one thing at a time. She's saying, my husband has eyes only for me. That's the idea behind that little analogy. By the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set, his cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance like Lebanon. Excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. And this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. You think she's into him? I think so. Sure sounds like very poetic as she gazes at him. But look over chapter 7. Now he speaks of her. As he looks at her and describes her, he notices some different elements. Verse 1, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter, the curves of your thighs like jewels. I just want to remind you before we go any further, we are reading from the Bible. I just want to bring that out. I just want to lay that down because you're about to read some things you go that's in the Bible what is that rated? it's rated B for Bible verse 2 your navel is a rounded goblet it lacks no blended beverage your waist is a heap of wheat Set about with lilies, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Now, I don't want you to think he's saying, you know, you got a big schnoz, sweetie. That would kill the romance right there. He's saying you have an elegant nose, a noteworthy, beautiful nose, like these two landmarks that were known for that. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. He is the king held captive by her. How fair and how pleasant are you, O love, with your delights. This, this stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said... I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best one. You ever talk to each other that way? (laughs) I've had a couple of husbands say, you know, my wife said, you ought to to talk to me that way. He goes, I I can't. (laughs) Who knows what would happen if you tried, though. Here's the, here's the greater point. God made every part of your body. Every part equipped with a nervous system to enjoy. That's how God made you. He, you are designed by a creator to be sexually stimulated. At creation... It says, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good, including this. Very good. Now, if I were to give you a quick synopsis of what the Bible says the purpose of sex is, here's a quick three-word theology from the Bible. The Bible's theology of sex. It serves three purposes. Babies, bonding, bliss. That's the Bible's theology of sexuality. It's for babies, bonding, and bliss. First of all, for babies. God said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Reproduction. Have to have sex to have people. So, for babies. Second, for bonding. Sex is more than the physical act. It is a bond that brings the couple together emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. This is why the Bible describes the act of marriage by saying, and the man knew his wife. It talks about them knowing each other. When it says Adam knew his wife, he wasn't like looking at her, talking about computers. Like, let's know things together. He was knowing her in the physical sense. Because sex is a means of getting to know each other in the deepest possible way. So babies, bonding. Third is bliss. There are pleasure sensations that come with this to bring you pleasure, satisfaction, and release. We see this in the words of our text, satisfied, and the word enraptured. So we get the idea, hopefully very clearly and plainly, that the sexual impulse is God-given. But it must be God-guided. Because it is God-given, it must be God-guided. He didn't give you the impulse for you to just act on that impulse anytime you feel like you want to with whatever or whomever. It must be God-guided. So intimacy begins with commitment, grows with enjoyment, includes allurement. And finally, we'll bring this to a close. Intimacy is part of a covenant. It's part of covenant. We talked about covenant last time. We said that God says, when you have a marriage, He'll show up, and He'll be a witness of the vows that you share with each other. It's part of that greater covenant. Look at verse 18 again, and notice the word blessed. Let your fountain be blessed. Now, that's a biblical word, right? Christians say that word. You could ask the average guy, how do you feel? Oh, good. You ask a Christian, they might say, I feel blessed. I feel like God is involved in my life, and He's blessed my life. And then look at verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he, God, ponders all his mankind's paths. So we live our life under the eye of God. We have our marriage under the eye of God. God needs to be involved in our relationships. When I, when I first saw Lenya, before I even met her, I saw her across a room. It was at a friend's potluck at a friend's house in Southern California. I saw her across a room, and I was attracted by her beauty. I hadn't met her yet, so that's what I had to go by. I said, she's really cute. She's got those cool red jeans on white top, tanned feet. You know, I thought, I want to I meet that gal. So I was attracted by her beauty. A few minutes later, we met. And now I'm attracted by her personality and her beauty. So we dated a while, broke up, reconnected. And when we reconnected, it was over dinner, we were catching up on our lives, she was telling me what God was doing in her life, and there was a whole different element that I was attracted by, and that was her spirituality at that point. She, she had a relationship with the Lord that I longed for, and a depth of insight in the scriptures uh, that, was, that was noteworthy, and when we prayed together, I just remember going, wow, so now I was attracted by her spirituality and her personality and her beauty. So all the stars were like, phoom, aligned. Proverbs 31 says, Beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So this last component of intimacy, I just sort of want to sum it up by saying, Bring God into your marriage and keep Him there. Keep Him there. Uh, Have a God-centered relationship, a God-centered romance. You'll have a better marriage if you do. And by the way, uh, do you know that you'll have greater intimacy if you do? Do you understand that you'll have higher sexual pleasure if you keep God at the center? Two researchers from family life seminars, found that Christians generally experience, listen to this, a higher degree of sexual enjoyment than non-Christians. Can I get a hallelujah from God's people on that research? Because we're, we're constantly, you know, the world kind of walks around like, come on, man, we're, the, we're, we're, we're unsaved, man. We get to do whatever we want. We, we have fun all the time. You Christians are repressed. You don't have the, the, the enjoyment factor we have. Well, the research says that we have a higher degree of sexual enjoyment than you do. Red Book Magazine published a sexual pleasure survey and showed the preferences of 100,000 women, quoting now, sexual satisfaction is related significantly to religious belief. With notable consistency, the greater the intensity of a woman's religious convictions, the likelier she is to be highly satisfied with the sexual pleasures of marriage. End quote. I think I know why that is. She's figured out this is God's will. I can give myself an abandonment and enjoy this to the full because this is how I'm designed. So don't leave God out of your marriage. It's His marriage too. Now, last time we were together, I gave you a little acronym. Remember at the end of it, some tips that I threw out. I'm not going to give you an acronym, but I'm going to throw out a few tips. These are just Skip's tips. You can throw them away if they don't work for you because they're not based on the Bible. Just some observations. It may enhance intimacy. Number one. Now, this is going to be hard to hear. Number one, leave technology out of your bedroom. See, I already... Some of you are going, forget it. I'm out of (laughs) here. I'm married to my phone. Leave technology out of... you, you You get distracted enough... All day long by that little thing, and it's not, I'm to not saying you can't. You know, some couples say oh, we don't even have a television in our room. We we sit there, we bond, we talk, and and you, you can do that. But don't place it like a shrine in your life. You know, I read an art, I read an article this week about this, and uh, I think it was like 46% of the couples that were served that were a part of the survey, 46% of them said they felt, their words, phone snubbed by their partner. Phone snubbed. Like, I'm not important, but that little device is. So, a tip. Leave technology out of your bedroom or give it a, a far less important place in your life than it is. Number two, go to bed at the same time. If you can. I understand schedules... Don't always permit this. But again, the research is in that couples who don't go to bed at the same time have a less satisfying intimate relationship. Those who do have a more satisfying intimate relationship for a lot of reasons. So if you can, try to synchronize your schedule. Third and finally, give a blessing to your spouse. Let the last words that she hears or he hears before they fall asleep Words of praise, words of thanksgiving, or a prayer, some, some blessing. So when they fall asleep, it's those last words that make them want to wake up and see your face on the other side of the pillow. Otherwise, like, oh, you again? <laughs> Bless them before they go to sleep. Father, we want to thank you that your word speaks about even these things. And these are important to you. And your Holy Spirit felt it important to include in the Holy Writ not just end time prophecy and not just warnings against sin and not just the glorious promise of the cross but also things that include the human condition us with each other and us in a marriage relationship not just the human condition but you you want our lives to thrive and blossom and flourish you want us to enjoy this aspect of the way you created us in the proper context that fire ought to burn I pray that for the marriages here um, the fire would burn brightly responsibly that they would enjoy one another that you would bless the marriages I understand that not everybody here is married, some are single, some are divorced, for some it's just painful to go through week after week of a marriage, a service. Lord, I pray for them and I pray that you will heal their hearts and um, encourage them and let them see, Lord, that no matter where they are in their lives, they're all a part of us, they're all a part of the family. And every single family, even our Christian family, even this church family. There's dysfunction in all of us because we're all sinners. We all fail. We all blow it. And we all need your forgiveness. I pray that nobody would feel subpar, but all loved and all on the journey to eventually be with you one day forever. Until then, Lord, give us courage and strength to build one another up. In Jesus' name, amen hope you enjoyed this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. How will you put the truths that you learned into action in your life? Let us know. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. At and just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.